Gerard Robinson, I am so happy to be back with you in these waning days of summer. And I have to say, I know that you got to spend some absolute QT. It's always QT when you're with the wonderful Charlie Chippio, who is a fan favorite. But I just want to emphasize, Gerard, that I am indeed more fetching than Chippio, correct? That has been confirmed by a longtime friend and former Department of Education executive in Massachusetts. So it's been confirmed and affirmed. But I will always <laughs> say it's good to have him to be here because he's chipper. No, Chippy's chipper. But Kara's always conscious, cool, and conscientious. And Gerard knows how to alliterate. So, yeah. I mean, we've got it all going here on the learning curve. And shout out to our friend, that department, that former Department of Education, charter school authorizing official. I appreciate getting the inside track. Gerard, wow, we've got a lot going on. I'm sure we could take all of this half hour just to talk about primaries, just to talk about, I don't know, it's still like a huge heat wave here in Massachusetts. I'm grateful that you and Charlie were able to take the show last week as I was traveling. I had the great pleasure, I have to say, of being face-to-face -face with some of my very dear colleagues from Excel and Ed, which happens about twice a year and felt very important. And that's why I wasn't here. I was in Dallas, Texas. Let me tell you something. It was hot. It was very, very yeah. hot. <laughs> yeah. But the camaraderie made it all worth it. But, Gerard, I am so curious. You and I were talking at the front of the show. My kids are yet to be back in school because here we go back after Labor Day, which, you know, allows me so much more lovely QT with my children while I work during the day and they're not in camp anymore. But what's going on in your world? Are your kids back to school? I'm also really curious, Gerard, as to what you're reading and all of these. Still lots of primaries going on. We are in election season here. I'm wondering what's on your radar. So for the children part, my kids' uh, daughters are returning to school this week. And so we've had a great summer, camps, vacations, playcations. I think we've got one more sleepover to go. And that will, you know, that would pretty much put a bow on the end of summer. So it's been pretty productive for us, but they're going to go back. So if you're waiting for Labor Day, yeah, you've definitely got more time than us. And that varies. <laughs> he, you know, we've got one says, in the public school. He says school. with a bit of schadenfreude in his voice. He's like, you've got yeah. more time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've got, you know, we've got one in private, one in public. And so it depends on the schedule, but they're both going back. So we're pretty excited about that. And they love learning and they love their teachers. So uh, it'll be a good handoff. In terms of the primaries, you know, I'm still watching what's taking place, who's won, who lost. One that I have a particular interest on, and that won't really kick off until November, is the push for a new state chief in Georgia. So I'm taking a look at that, and that's where I am. Yeah, I'm watching Georgia, watching Oklahoma, watching Arizona. Lots of interesting stuff and a lot of, like, you know, we've talked about this before, we get really worked up about federal elections, and they are important, but man, those state legislatures, they're really where all the action is at, whether we like to believe it or not. So it's always important to watch state legislatures, state chief races, all super, super interesting. Jared, my story of the week is from a guy who's written so much about education that maybe he should be, could be a state chief. I don't know what, what your take is, but we've had him on this show before. It's from Jay Matthews of the Washington Post. Man, this commentary from Jay called, Some Kids Need Harder Lessons Than Schools Are Willing to Give Them. 
boy, oh boy, did it hit home with me. And I got to tell you, so this is, I don't know how this makes me look as a parent, but after retreating in Dallas with my colleagues, I went back to Michigan where my kids were at grandma and grandpa camp. And so my five-year-old, this, I swear this is relevant to the story, but I have a five-year-old son. He's my youngest. And you know, my other two, they were always really on it. They wanted to learn how to ride a bike. They wanted to like this five-year-old, when I tell you, he has no interest in such things. Like his poppy and I will be like, okay, come on, let's ride. We're going on a family bike ride. You should really learn how to ride. He says, no, thank you. We're at the pediatrician. The pediatrician said, so are you riding a bike yet? And he looked at her like she was nuts. And he said, I have no interest in riding a bike was what his face said. And she said, well, a lot of kids your age are learning how to ride bikes. And he said, I don't need to. My mommy has a really nice seat on the back of her bike. And she said, well, how long do you think you can ride in that seat? And he said, oh, until I'm about eight or nine. So that tells you. So as a parent, I'm really eager for my kid to learn how to ride the bike. We're in Michigan. And my parents had him on a bike with training wheels. And I said to my parents, let's take those training wheels off. Like he's five, he's big, he's got balance. We can do this. And my mother, we got in a little argument because my mother said, no, he needs to have feel a sense of accomplishment and confidence. And my attitude was, you need to throw this kid into the deep end and quit coddling him and he can rise to the occasion, right? So I'm reading this article by Jay Matthews, which is basically the whole crux of it is he's talking about this study that just came out by TNTP. And what it finds, it's a study of reading instruction, and this won't be surprising to you as a state chief, but it talks about how most kids in this country are just, they're getting below grade level instruction in reading. And the report outlines, the report doesn't claim to do anything but like lay this out here, like that they did, they surveyed all of these schools and school children, and they found that by and large kids, especially kids, who live on the lower end of the socioeconomic status scale are being 65% of the time children who qualify for free and reduced price lunch are being given below grade level work. Now, when the exact same children are given above grade level work, the study finds that they rise to the occasion, that they're able to do it, that they do better. So this begs the question, Jay is talking about the question of like, why is it that we continue to have this attitude that, oof, let's not challenge kids too much. Let's not throw them in to the deep end. And boy, oh boy, this really resonated with me because, as I'm sure will be unsurprising to all of our listeners, right, this has only gotten worse since the pandemic. This idea that, oof, let's not challenge kids too much. I don't know how you are. I think all kids are different, Gerard. But I find that although sometimes there's a little bit of initial pain when you take those training wheels off, the kids usually, um, most kids enjoy being challenged and they can still gain a sense of self-efficacy. I mean, I'm not saying they should spend their whole lives in the deep end not knowing what to do. But this article, this commentary from Jay Matthews, it also brought me back to like thinking about just the pendulum swing that is education policy. Because I know, Gerard, not to date you. But we both remember a nation at risk, right? I mean, I was, you know, in diapers. But we both remember one of the big findings of that foundational report in the 1980s was basically that, like, remember the tide that if, like, a hostile foreign power wanted to take over the U.S., and this was during the Cold War, that basically they'd totally be able to do so because our kids are, like, illiterate and can't do math. <laughs> and it was, but the whole argument was, like, our standards where they exist are very low. And we went through this whole era, right, in the 80s, where kids couldn't even pass common basic competency tests. And so what did we do? Instead of teaching them more, we took the tests away until 2001, when we get No Child Left Behind, which of course comes on the heels of some really important state efforts. But this theme 
in American education for the past 40, 50 years has been like, let's not challenge our kids. Let's not raise standards. And I think we're in now a period certainly in the post No Child Left Behind, but even more so in the post-pandemic era where this is prevalent. So I really appreciate this TNTP report. And I'm also taken back to, Jay talks about the founders of IDEA, the Charter Network in Texas in this report, and how they challenged kids to be able to do math. And they showed that actually when you put difficult math content in front of children, they will rise to the occasion if they're given the right tools and the right teachers and the right content. And I'm taken back to thinking about our charter schools, some of the highest performing charter schools in this country were what we used to call, and it is no longer acceptable to say, apparently, no excuses schools. And now there might have been some policies associated with those schools that left a bad taste in the mouths of parents. And I think that that's really important to recognize. But at the same time, one of the things that no excuses schools proved was that kids who have not been challenged when challenged are very capable, right? So these schools are schools that many of them were taking kids who would come in three, four grade levels behind in reading and math, and they would catch them up in a year so the kids could graduate high school and go to college. And many of them, by the way, are still doing that today. So we know it's possible, but it seems that this malaise, this don't challenge the kids is really endemic. And I think Jay really puts his finger on it here. Now, I don't know. You probably know more than I do about the answers. I can only speak to taking my own kids' training wheels off, Gerard. But it seems to me like one of the great values in this report, if we can disseminate it, is that teachers need to know it. Because teachers might not know it. And teachers might not have the autonomy. They might not have the right curriculum in their hands. And they might not have the confidence to say, I'm going to challenge kids even more than I otherwise would, or even more than the state curriculum says. I mean, what does it take to get a high school diploma in most states? It takes barely passing eighth grade content on a math or literacy test. Massachusetts did just raise its standards, I will say. But I think that most parents, most even teachers in this country, don't understand how, remember when President Bush, whose museum I got to visit in Dallas, called this the soft bigotry of low expectations. This is a big deal. I highly recommend this article. So again, that title is Some Kids Need Harder Lessons Than Schools Are Willing to Give Them. And there is a great link in there to the TNTP, the New Teacher Project Report, that talks about these findings on lowball teaching when it comes to early literacy. So that is my story of the week. It sang to me, Gerard. No, no, what are you thinking? No, you've hit some really, really good points. So let's talk at the state level about competition. And also, since you just returned from an Excel and Ed, I'm going to use Governor Jeb Bush in Florida as an example. When he was governor of Florida, he was really clear that students had to compete, not for the sake of trying to create a hunger game type environment for students, parents, and teachers, but to simply say, we're going to raise the bar of expectation. We're going to invest resources into the right spots, including reading coaches and others. And once we do this, over time, we'll see a rise. Not only did Florida see a rise in student achievement on its FCAT over time, but they were doing it with students who people said simply could not learn because of their zip code where they lived, because of gender, because of race, because of socioeconomic status, because of the education of their parents, because of the immigration status of their parents. I mean, when you look at Florida schools right now, still one of the top 10 states in the country in terms of academic achievement, it's a majority minority student population with roughly 50% of the students qualifying for free reduced price lunch. And when you look at 
studies published in peer-reviewed journals, studies published by think tanks, whether it's AEI, Brookings, everything in between, we see that, in fact, if you raise the standards, it's going to help. Now, does it mean that some students are going to fall through the cracks? Absolutely. But we're having fewer students fall through the cracks by actually trying to provide that. So there's at least one state with a population that many students do not have, but they have pockets of it, and they're having success. So that's number one. Number two, when you look at a nation at risk, Reagan's in office, our friend Dr. Checker Finn, also involved in the Department of Education at that time. You had not only corporate executives, but you had governors, military personnel, business leaders, teachers, and families who said, we need to do a better job so that our schools aren't at risk. This wasn't solely coming from Republicans. It wasn't solely coming from a playbook of Milton Friedman. It was a group of people, including libertarians as well, who said we need to do this. And I do think, and this is going to sound you know, harsh to some people, but I don't really care. <laughs> I think that we have a lot of people who are making decisions about competition, who themselves, when they were in school, did participate in competitive sports, uh, did not participate in activities that really found whether you could compete outside of academics. Basically meaning people who were in the library now deciding, because they're in a position of power, what students can and cannot do. And so I think there's a point where we should bring back the bullies and the jocks and the others who people said were the ones who bullied them into submission. Let's bring them back and put them onto a panel and have a conversation about what competition looks like. I'm not saying I'm wanting want more bullying, but I'm saying that we can't let one segment of the American elite decide who can and cannot compete. Because I can tell you when I work with Dr. Howard Fuller as a fellow at the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University, that I worked in Milwaukee. Tough city with tough challenges, but tough problems were exacerbated, in part because of that language of students can't compete. I actually saw students compete in something called, get this, academic Olympics, where they had to compete against other students. Someone lost. Someone didn't win the gold. Someone didn't win the bronze. But you had to compete. Life is about competition. The human race as we know it had to get here because of the four Fs, and I won't say all four of those. But one F I want to add is the frenzy of simply being weak, the frenzy of simply not wanting to take a stand, and the frenzy of not wanting to say suck it up when it comes time to do it, because we somehow seem to do well for our own children, and behind the closed doors, we put them into competitive environments. But when it comes to children, or what our friend in her award-winning book called Other People's Children. Yeah, Lisa Delpit. Yeah. Yep. Now we want to make excuses. But that's my two cents. I love it. And just real quick, before we get to your story of the week, I have to say, when you say let's bring all the jocks and put them together on a panel and the bullies, I'm just picturing the breakfast club. Like we could bring yeah. all of that back, right? Put them in detention yeah. and let them hash it out. I want to hear what they have to come up with. Anyway, on to yours, my friend, because I know you've been thinking about something cool, too. Well, thinking about back to school, and we think about the more than 55 million public school students who are returning to school in person. We're looking at, you know, more than 8 million students who are going to private schools. A lot more students are going to go to the homeschooling sector. And when we think about schooling, we often don't think about all the populations. And we say people of color, it's often Black and Hispanic, often overlooked Asian Americans. But one group we often overlook are Native Americans. We have it here on the learning curve. We've actually had a leader in a Native American community come to talk about his work. So my story is really going to focus on Native American students. And this is written by Terrence Falk in the Wisconsin Examiner. And Terrence has basically given us an idea of 
schools not meeting state mandates for Native Americans in the state. Now, on August 18th, there were a group of people who were involved with the Wisconsin Indian Education Association. They held a meeting, what he called a celebration, to the state's commitment to Native American education under Act 31. And Act 31 is a piece of legislation passed in the 1980s to require that primary and secondary public schools in Wisconsin provide instruction to students and to educators about the history, culture, and treaty rights of Wisconsin's Native American population. Now, this legislation did not grow out of good feelings to say we should do this. In fact, in the 1980s, there were protests and conflicts between white fishermen in Wisconsin and Native American spear fishermen and women over treaty rights and who had rights to do it. And so as as with you know with anything with legislative battles you had to figure out well who are the right players and what are the right outcomes well trying to identify fishing rights with one part of dealing with years of segregation years of derogation of native american history and culture someone said well one thing we could also do is strengthen the education not only of native americans but all students in wisconsin about the native american history their contribution and others to our state. And so Governor Tommy Thompson, who also, as we know, was the champion of the first urban-based voucher program in the country in 1989, he signed Act 31 into law. And there is a professor at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, who actually wrote a book called The History of Act 21. And J.P. Leary really just outlined why this matters today and why is it, it's mattered historically. Now, to put this in context, I took a look at a 2015 report put together by the Wisconsin Department of Education, and it's called American Indian Education in Wisconsin. And one of the first major laws passed in that state to deal with Native American education, in fact, was Wisconsin 31. But it's also worth noting that Wisconsin in 1989 was one of a small group of states who said, we're going to require instruction in history, culture, and tribal sovereignty in our state. And they said, not only are we going to do that, we're going to make sure that public school districts are required to provide instruction at least twice in elementary grades, at least once in high school. But get this, all Wisconsin teachers, including pre-service teachers and teachers certified outside of Wisconsin, are required to receive college-level instruction in the history, culture, and tribal sovereignty of the state. And so the author of the article took a look and said that the results to date have been mixed. First of all, there's some school systems who are using it, some aren't. And one of the reasons many school systems aren't using it as much as they should, according to the author, is the fact that there just simply aren't enough Department of Education officials and consultants who can dedicate time to do so. Back when the law was signed in 1989 and a few years moving forward, you had several people who would go throughout the district looking at approximately 10% of the school districts and taking a look to see, are you doing it and what can we do? Well, fast forward, that numbers began to drop because of either budget cuts, because of focus. Well, either way, that's one thing where the Wisconsin Indian Association said we've got to do a better job. On the positive side, they said that there are actually more students in the state, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, and other, who said they've actually learned more about the culture and have come to appreciate it. But given the course of the times we live in right now, this issue of Native American education happens to fall into a broader conversation now about critical race theory. And naturally and understandably so, we would think we're talking about black education, but guess what? Native American education, in fact, has found its way into the debate. Do you know that in 2021, some black students were forced to cut their dreadlocks or to move hair yes. in order to participate in athletics? And guess what? Native Americans, in fact, were forced, particularly the boys, they were forced because of their hair braiding 
So in 2021, the Wisconsin Indian Education Association passed a resolution in support of protecting expressions of cultural identity, such as wearing braids or eagle feathers on graduation caps. In 2021, the National Indian Education Association replaced a resolution rejecting any legislation or action to limit the full inclusive teaching of history in the United States, especially as it relates to American Indians, Alaskan Natives, and Native Hawaiians. And so this resolution, of course, is in part to the broader conversation of teaching American history. And what the Native Americans said is, it's tough to teach American history and not talk about genocide that was placed upon Natives, but also to not talk about the role Native people have played in helping to create America as we know it today. So for me, as I think about back to school, I want to at least give some support to what's taking place in Wisconsin. And for all of us to realize that when we're talking about students, let's not forget the Native American population. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I have to say, uh, we mentioned Lisa Delpit <laughs> earlier talking about bisegment, and she also that her work, other people's children and work that came after came out of working with native populations, right? <laughs> in, like in Alaska. And this is something, this is just not part of the general conversation. I thank you for bringing it to our knowledge that, you know, we talk about critical race theory and we talk about some of these more controversial things that have really robbed us of actual conversation. I think deep conversation in the past few years that most people do not have in their mind that this involves Native American peoples and how they would like or, or how they would have history taught in their own schools, many of their schools. M many indigenous people are still of a generation where they remember schools where they were taken away, where children were taken away from their parents, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is, my mentor yeah. Charlie Glenn has written about this and the history of the oppression of Native American peoples. It's so amazing how blind most of us are to it. I think that if you ask most people to like draw a picture or f provide a photo of what a Native American person looks like, they would still probably because of what we are taught in schools, draw something that looked like a, a textbook drawing of like the Mayflower, right? I mean, it's just, very, yeah, this is just an issue that needs to be discussed, needs to be brought to the fore. We talk a lot about folks who've been oppressed in this country and Native American people are just all too often left out of that conversation and their voices are all too often just not at all a part of the conversation about schools and what's happening in schools and what's being taught in schools and in schools that should be run by Native peoples and in which Native people have a say. It's a really important topic and thank you for bringing it to our attention. And so note to our producers that let's let's do a little bit more on this because our last guest on the topic was phenomenal. And speaking of guests, we've got one waiting in the wings, Gerard. So we are going to be talking next with Alan Taylor, Professor Alan Taylor. He is the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History in your neck of the woods at the University of Virginia. So that'll be coming up right after this. We are back with Alan Taylor. He is the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History at the University of Virginia, right in Gerard's hometown backyard. He taught previously at the University of California, Davis, and Boston University, where I also taught for a short stint. Taylor has authored 11 books, including in 2019, Thomas Jefferson's Education, 
and The Internal Enemy, Slavery and the War in Virginia, which was a National Book Award for Nonfiction finalist in 2013 and won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize in History. His book, William Cooperstown, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early American Republic, won the 1996 Bancroft Beverage and Pulitzer Prizes. Taylor is a graduate of Colby College and received his PhD right in my backyard from Brandeis University. Professor Taylor, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So. We want to talk about one of our founding fathers, perhaps one of our most multifaceted founding fathers, who in his own time and today is, well, complicated and certainly in recent years, much more controversial, I think. So could you share with our listeners some of the highlights of Jefferson's career? I know that's probably not an easy thing to do, but also let's talk a little bit, given the nature of our audience, about his view of the importance of primary public education and his founding, of course, of UVA. Well, Jefferson, as you mentioned, is perhaps the most versatile of the founding fathers in that he had talents as an architect, as a writer, as a political writer, thinker, statesman. He was a diplomat. He served as the first secretary of state in the Washington administration. He became vice president and then he became president. And he's associated, of course, with the acquisition of the Louisiana Purchase. But when he came to inscribe on his tombstone what he saw as his greatest accomplishments, they did not include any of his political accomplishments or his political offices, I should say. But instead, they emphasized his founding of the University of Virginia and his role in separating church and state through the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom of 1786. And these two things were connected. For Jefferson, he saw one of the great accomplishments of the American Revolution was to separate church and state to end the favorable treatment of one church by the government, the colonial government, and that was the Anglican or Episcopal Church, which was established, and that meant that it received tax money. And by law, people were supposed to attend that church unless they went through some sort of complicated opt-out. So Jefferson and other revolutionaries in Virginia were out to end that favored treatment. And when they did that, it also ended up eliminating the parish schools that were generally run by these tax-supported ministers. And so for Jefferson, a key part of realizing the revolution is to have an alternative system, a publicly funded secular school system. Unfortunately, that cost money. And most Virginians just wanted to cut their taxes. And so Jefferson gets half of what he wants out of the revolution by ending the establishment of the Anglican Church, but he doesn't get the substitution of a secular public education system. He kept pushing for it, and he really got nowhere. So that after he retired as president, he decided he would reduce his ambitions and try to achieve the one element that he thought was more doable, and that was to found a university. He figured that would cost less money than establishing a system of primary education through the many counties of a very large state, and that it would have more support from the leaders of Virginia who could imagine sending their children to a university, but who were not keen about taxing themselves to educate more common Virginians. And so that's the 
primary thing that, uh, that I would emphasize in Jefferson's commitment to education is that he's forced to compromise, and he's forced to compromise by focusing on creating the University of Virginia in the 18-teens. That's amazing. And of course, a compromise that results in <laughs> something huge, putting the United States, you know, placing us as a forerunner, I would say, in the world when it comes to higher education and the quality of higher education. We can probably say something different today about the quality of our publicly funded primary education, unfortunately, in too many places. But I have to say, as somebody who studied education for 20 years now, I was not aware of the important role that Jefferson played or of his views on the importance of publicly funded primary education. So thank you for that. I want to ask you a little bit about how Jefferson thought about higher education as an expression of federalism. I mean, I think that, unfortunately, I will say, I don't think that I was the beneficiary of an excellent history education in secondary school. And so a lot of my education about Thomas Jefferson, embarrassingly, this might be true for quite a few Americans at this point, came from Hamilton, the popular mm -hmm. Broadway show, right? But so mm -hmm. talk to us about this relationship between how he saw education and federalism and how it would serve very specifically his home state, what he referred to as my country, Virginia. Right. Well, federalism meant a different thing in Jefferson's time than it means today. Until recent years, we've kind of had a consensus that federalism means that there are certain areas that are reserved for the state, but overall the federal government has sovereignty for a nation. But that's an idea that really emerged in a big way during the American Civil War. And so if we go before the Civil War, we find people like Jefferson insisted on keeping the federal government limited. And Jefferson early and often would say things like, Virginia is my nation. So he imagined the federal government as really a coordinating body for a variety of sovereign states of which the most important for Jefferson was Virginia. So Jefferson did not cooperate with George Washington's efforts to establish a national university in Washington, D.C. Instead, Jefferson tried to divert Washington's assets that he wanted to invest in such a university into a what he called a national university, but it would be the National University of Virginia. Jefferson had, you know, he's first and foremost a patriot of Virginia who was willing to cooperate with other Americans in the United States to achieve the American Revolution and also then to try to keep the peace among the different states thereafter. But the University of Virginia is not the first public university established in the country. It's the fourth. The others were also in the South, so the University of North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, all older, a bit older from the 1790s. And it is interesting that the Southern states take the lead in founding public universities. And it's in part because they were far behind in private universities, just about all the private universities like Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Columbia. They were Northern institutions. And there was some concern or considerable concern by the leaders of the South that their children going to Northern institutions might learn the wrong ideas and bring them back home. So there was an effort to use public 
funding in order to establish Southern universities that would be just as good as those Northern private institutions. If I could just go a step further, you happened to mention that Georgia, South Carolina, and North mm. Carolina had public universities before UVA. I've got friends at UNC and at Georgia, and they're always debating who is the first public school. Do you have the answer to that so I can figure out who's right and who's wrong? I think it's UNC, but okay. I am, that's off the top of my head, so I haven't looked at it. These three institutions, other than UVA, are all established during the 1790s, as I understand it. Well, getting back to UVA, and since UVA and UNC are in the uh, ACC, we're still within the same theme. Jefferson decided that he wasn't only going to focus on education, but on the architect and the original buildings, what he called his academical village, that he said education had to also encompass a look. And so can you talk about the architectural meaning, symbolism, and significance of UVA's buildings that Jefferson Hill create? Right. Well, I would say that Jefferson is very much a man of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment believed that if you came up with just the right set of rules and the right set of buildings arranged in the right way, that people's behavior would naturally shift toward a more natural expression of what should be proper behavior. So people of the Enlightenment believed that they needed to break down older institutions that were based on elitism of kind of inherited wealth and status and substitute more of a meritocracy. And Jefferson then rejected the traditional form of the college, which was one big building in which most of the students would live, they would take their classes, and often faculty members would live there. And this was the case in the college that he had attended, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, which essentially had one big building. And for Jefferson, this was just a den of strife and noise and distraction, and it therefore bred the wrong kind of behavior. So Jefferson wanted to disperse people into many smaller buildings. And so he arranged his architecture so there would be one focal point, which would be the university library. And then there would be these wings of smaller buildings in which there would be the student rooms. They would not live in one big building, but they would live in many smaller buildings. And these would be interspersed with faculty pavilions where the faculty member would live and would also conduct his courses. And then also what Jefferson called hotels. And these were essentially places that would provide meals and also cleaning services for the students. And Jefferson believed that this kind of dispersion of the students and intermixing them with faculty and also with these hotel keepers and their families, that this would tend to make students more orderly. And so, yes, the point of the architecture also is to demonstrate neoclassical architecture in its various forms, but it's also an exercise in social engineering that was especially important because universities at that time, colleges and universities, were very disorderly places. And they were especially disorderly in the South because the people who are going to these institutions 
are young men, and I use that loosely because a lot of them are 16, 17, 18 years old. They're young men. They're from wealthy families. They're families in which almost all of them own slaves. And young men, white men, are being trained to assert their personalities, to be commanding presences, because this is what they're going to have to do if they're going to be running plantations in the future, which most of them will be doing. And so it, by everybody's account, including Jefferson's, these young white men of elite families in the South are ungovernable. And they riot frequently and make all sorts of problems, including vandalism and attacking professors at their institutions. And so Jefferson says, this is the number one problem I have to solve in creating the University of Virginia, is how can I get this particular body of young men to focus on their studies in a more disciplined way? And the architecture of UVA was designed to try to achieve that result. Thank you. Keeping with the theme of slavery in Virginia, as many of our listeners know, Virginia was the largest, wealthiest, most popular state, producing four of the five earlier presidents, one of the five, of course, coming from Massachusetts. When we discuss Jefferson today, there are many mixed views, particularly on the fact that he was a man of the Enlightenment who believed that all men were free and yet himself owned slaves. Could you talk about Jefferson and the issue of slavery? And you've already begun to interweave how that relates to the University of Virginia and what that even means today. Well, you're right. This is a very big and very complex question. Jefferson is first and foremost a Virginian. And he's a Virginian who was born into the wealthiest class of slave owners. His father was the leading slave owner in Albemarle County. So Jefferson, by his own account, his earliest memories are of living with slaves. Jefferson's also a well-educated man who has read many of the great works of the Enlightenment, And those works tended to be very critical of slavery as an ancient institution that is, of course, highly exploitative. So Jefferson is both of these at the same time. It doesn't make him unique. It doesn't make him uniquely good or uniquely bad. It makes him a man of his generation and his class in his place, Virginia. Jefferson is certainly better educated than almost, well, than I would say anybody else in Virginia of his time. And he's very self-conscious that on the one hand, he doesn't want to do anything that's going to rock the boat in Virginia and cost him popularity there. On the other hand, he wants to maintain his standing in intellectual circles outside of Virginia, including in France, but also in the northern states where people expected him to come out against slavery. So it means that Jefferson, with the exception of the one book he publishes after the revolution, which is Notes in the State of Virginia, and the exception of that book, which was meant to circulate initially just in France, there he's quite clear in his denunciation of slavery. But in his public statements as a politician in Virginia and in the United States in general, he does his best to avoid taking on the issue of slavery, with the exception, important exception, of he does facilitate the end of the import slave trade of Africans into the United States. But that was a non-controversial position. It overwhelmingly passes, but most Southern congressmen supported it, from the conviction that there were already enough enslaved people uh, in the United States for the needs of the economy. 
So Jefferson is a difficult person for us in our present time to understand because we take him out of his context. Now, to put him back in his context is, is not to justify slavery or to say that he couldn't have made a different choice than he did. But it's to say that he is somebody who is responding very much to the incentives and the pressures of his class position, his racial position, his gender position, in a state in which the overwhelming majority of people supported the slave system. Absolutely. I'd like to give you an opportunity to read a passage of your choice. I'd be happy to. I'm going to read something that comes at the very start of the first chapter. And this particular reading does get into Jefferson's own experience as a college student. Late in life, Thomas Jefferson recalled, quote, the regular annual riots and battles between the students of William and Mary with the town boys before the revolution. And then he added a Latin phrase, forum pars hui, which means of which I was a part. So he's confessing. He participated in these riots. The Colonial College's most spectacular riot erupted in July of 1760 during Jefferson's first year there. Some students gathered in the gallery of the Williamsburg Church during services and spat and urinated on the townspeople below. Those townspeople chased away the students who rallied at the college and returned to counterattack led by two professors, both English-born, who carried cutlasses and pistols. Anticipating that return, the town's apprentices gathered in the main street, but broke and fled upon seeing the weapons. A witness reported that, quote, the exulting conquerors, end quote, returned to the college where they drank Bumbo and Madeira, shot off their pistols. Well, this riot troubled Virginia's leading colonists because it enlisted their sons under the leadership of professors from Britain. Colonial leaders in Virginia worried that British influence might win over young men, drawn by the allure of a cosmopolitan empire to reject the ways of their colonial parents. Peyton Randolph had a special reason to worry, for he was a preeminent politician, attentive to his young cousin, Thomas Jefferson. But the young man soon put his cousin's fears to rest. After the briefest flirtation with college rioting, Jefferson became the best and brightest of young Virginians. During the 1770s, he would help lead the colonial resistance to the British Empire and to the church and state establishment in Virginia. Well, Professor Alan Taylor, thank you so much for that reading and for this really enlightening interview. It was just lovely to spend time with you today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the interview as well. Folks, we always close it out with a tweet of the week. I love anything that uses the word tinkerer in it. So here is our tweet from the National Association of Scholars. Didn't know that existed. Maybe we should look into joining that, Gerard. The American Innovation Webinar Series celebrates America's legacy as a land of tinkerers and engineers by showcasing the American inventions and inventors that have shaped our everyday lives. I have to say real quick, I was listening to a podcast this past weekend. I think it was maybe Freakonomics, and they were talking about tight and loose cultures, the U.S. being what we call a loose culture, which means you can get away with a lot, but apparently 
man, we're pretty darn great on innovation. So you've got to sort of take your pick and the innovations, the tinkering that led to COVID vaccines that have been now used around the world, I think are case in point of that. But folks who want to read more about this can visit the National Association of Scholars Twitter account. It's at mobiletwitter.com at NASorg. And I think this is pretty cool stuff that we can get to see there. So Gerard, next week, we, as always, have another phenomenal guest. We are going to be speaking with Professor Angel Adams Parham. Maybe I'm saying that correctly. Maybe I'm not, but we're going to find out next week. And, oh, maybe you already know because Professor Parham is from the Advanced Studies in Culture Senior Institute at the University of Virginia. Lots of Virginia going on on the learning curve these days. Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Fellow, of course, at the Advanced Studies in Culture, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture, where you, Gerard, spend a lot of your time, correct? Exactly. Ah, so this is a colleague of Gerard's. We're just going to let him, folks, take the whole interview because he's better at it <laughs> than I am anyway. Until then, Gerard, I wish your family a wonderful return to school. And I, as always, will look forward to speaking with you next week. Sounds good, my friend. Take care. Take care. <laughs>